Welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio, a podcast for and about the people of the Nashville restaurant scene. Now here's your host, the CEO of New Light Hospitality Solutions, Brandon Still. Hello, Music City, and welcome to Nashville Restaurant Radio. My name is Brandon Still, and I am your host, and we have a great one for you today. We are going to be speaking with Chef Derek Brooks, who's the executive chef at the Hermitage Hotel, which is the state's only five-star, five-diamond property. Uh, Very familiar, I'm sure, with the Oak Bar as well as the Capitol Grill. And we're going to talk with him today just about kind of what it's like. He moved here from Miami to take over the executive chef job, a job that was held by Sean Brock and Tyler Brown for so many years and what that's like coming into that type of kitchen. We're going to talk about what it's like running a five-star, five-diamond dining room and then having to close it and do everything to go. And we've got a pretty cool challenge towards the very end that comes up organically that we're going to start doing today. So sit back, relax, enjoy my conversation with Chef Derek Brooks. Derek Brooks, you are the executive chef of the Hermitage Hotel in the Capitol Grill. Thank you so much for joining us on Nashville Restaurant Radio. Absolutely. My pleasure to uh, take some time out and uh, talk with you guys. Man, I'm just, um, I'm so excited. I, being working with, um, working at Creation Gardens in 2005 through 2009, I worked with the Hermitage Hotel and I've been in that kitchen so many times and um how's it going down there how's everything going over there well yeah i've actually uh, i came on board in um the end of 2017 in december and i've been uh, here ever since um and actually you know just am enthralled with the entire operation and how everything's kind of been you know heading so it sounds like you have your hands absolutely full Let's get back to where it all started. When did you actually start cooking? Um, I actually started cooking at a very young age. Um, Growing up in uh, in Chicago, in the southwest suburbs, uh, Plainfield is where I grew up. Um, My family, you know, were always involved in cooking and entertaining through with family members. So we always, you know, kind of food was a big was a big area for us always sitting down together as a family you know whether my mom or father were making the food and you know sometimes during on the season if those items came from our garden in our backyard um, and that always transpired to me getting my first job as a necessity to you know get a car and you know make some car payments and gas is you know, I got a job at a Mexican restaurant down the street from my house called Potter's Place. If you were to go home tomorrow and your your, your family was cooking dinner, what's like the one thing that you guys cook? What was like your family dish, the thing that is like going home for you? Um, there's so many, but I mean, I'd have to choose like one dish um, would be my mother's cold pizza. It was more in the summertime. Um and it was, you know, like those uh, Pillsbury, uh, like the crescent rolls, like kind of puff pastry baked mm-hmm. off on like a flat sheet tray. And then she made like this uh, dill herb cream cheese 
and then it was nothing but like fresh vegetables, you know, kind of sliced on top, green onions, tomatoes, cucumbers, uh, there was some black olives, mushrooms, and that was like, that was it. It was like the best um, thing. Awesome. So I love that. So, so you've started working in restaurants. When was the moment, did you have a moment where you realized like you wanted to do this for a career? Um, that was probably about two and a half years later as um, I got, as I started commuting um, because I was tired of living in the, uh, the college life, if you will. Um, and I got a job at the Empress Casino out in Joliet. And that was my first introduction to a professional kitchen, meaning there was a garmage department, there was a pastry department, there was a banquet department. They had multiple restaurants in there. And then as I was working there, I kind of, you know, had culinary experience since I was 16. So I was, you know, moving up and then I was promoted to the back production kitchen instead of working on the buffet. And that was when I really clicked that this is, could be a career. I'm, I wouldn't say I was exceptionally at the time, but I was eager. I wanted to more knowledge. I wanted to learn, always asking questions. Why, chef, do you do it like that? Why did you add it then? You know, kind of more inquisitive. And that's when, you know, the chef noticed and they were like, I think you should really kind of maybe look at going to culinary school. So who was so that? that? Who was that chef that noticed that for you? What was their name? Um, her name was Kelly Davis. She was one of the sous chefs that was working in the Empress kind of casino in the back area. Um, and she noticed that, you know, like I was always moving with a sense of urgency, you know, trying to get things done. And then kind of mentioned that, you know, why don't you look at culinary school? And then that's when I enrolled in Chicago at the Cooking and Hospitality Institute in Chicago um, called Chic, and then got a job at the Intercontinental Hotel right downtown Michigan, 525 Michigan Avenue. And it was an amazing experience from the standpoint that the chef I ended up working for, he was trained by two chefs that I would go on to work for later Sarah Stegner and George Rumbaris, who between the two of them had over 50 years experience and they worked at the Ritz-Carlton, you know, Chicago, which was a Four Seasons property. And then I ended up going to work for them at the Ritz-Carlton. But that chef that I worked for in the Intercontinental kind of gave me a leg up, you know, he was I wouldn't say he was mean, but he pushed me to become better, you know, like making sure going through my mise en place, and if anything wasn't up to standard, then it was kind of discarded and, you know, kind of redoing it. I always found that chefs like that were really kind of tough to work for from a sales perspective, but I ended up respecting the heck out of them because they made me so much better. So we're moving along. What's the, uh, so the next place you went Where'd you go next? This is kind of like a, a weird story that had um, unique um, endings. At the time, I was um, in a relationship, and the girl I was dating, she wanted to move back um, to D.C., and 
and I was, you know, always up for a, a challenge or, you know, kind of seeing new things. So I ended up going back to the Intercontinental in Chicago, um, working part-time, having the two jobs, so I could just transfer into the Intercontinental, the Willard in D.C., and then kind of have a job and, and right when I moved there. Um, which was great. The, the Intercontinental in D.C., the Willard, was considered like the White House's hotel at the time. Oh, wow. It was the closest White House or the hotel to the White House. So we always had a lot of dignitaries come in and stay. And I remember a couple times of having to go in at, you know, 11 a.m. or 11 p.m. at night to start roasting, you know, baby goats and lambs because there was a Turkish delegate in and they wanted to stay on their own time. So there was a lot of, you know, those unique things. And unfortunately, I wasn't there during an inauguration, but with talking to all of, you know, the chefs and the cooks that work there, they were saying that during the inauguration, the two weeks before and possibly the three weeks after, it was the craziest that they will ever see in their entire lives. They were saying that every room, banquet, every inch of space was booked, and they showed me floors of storage that they would buy all of these containers and vessels every four years just for all of the inaugurations, and that they would pretty much make their entire F&B budget for the year during that time, wow. which I just thought was insane. That's just in, that that is out of control to think that over just an inauguration that you would make your entire F&B budget for an entire year. Because just that's what they said. I mean, there's, I don't know how true to that, but every single event space, every room was sold three to four times, obviously, what it was because of the the event and all of the prices were increased. And it was just it was wild. So where to next? From D.C., I moved to Vail, Colorado, and opened up a luxury boutique hotel, um, which was really a unique experience to kind of as you progress, you know, from sous chefs, line cook, chef de partie, and now all of a sudden I'm a chef de cuisine with, you know, having to create menus and recipes and kind of, you know, go over, train the staff. So as you're kind of working on cooking that's the one trade-off is that as the higher up you go it kind of focuses from cooking more to mentoring training and becoming that that driving leader so you start to kind of understand you know where your path is going now that's so interesting well because i think that that's a lot of that's part of the progression that that's why i love hearing these stories is because i want people out there to hear like so you started at a mexican restaurant went to red lobster and then you worked your way up through all of the, and it it doesn't just happen overnight and it doesn't happen at just one property i mean you found people that you really respected and people that inspired you and then you followed them and they had trust in you and you built these relationships which took you all over the country so you got to travel um, you went to D.C., Chicago, now you're in Vail. I ended up moving to Southern California, 
Um, one of the room's directors was on hired at the Pelican Hill Resort. And he, you know, gave my resume to my next mentor. So between Sarah and George, the next one that really shaped a lot of my, you know, culinary management was Jean-Pierre Dubray. Um, he was an MOF chef. He was spent 25 years at the Ritz-Carlton San Francisco, and his restaurant chefs were Ron, um, Ron Siegel and Gary Danko, and he wow. came as the executive chef opening of the Pelican Hill Resort, and I had spent six years working for him. So, wow, the Pelican Hill Resort, Southern California, Orange County. You must have served a lot of celebrities. Do you ever get, like, nervous when serving a celebrity? Does it make a difference to you? Um, not essentially. I mean, the one thing, like, that kind of, I mean, getting off topic, but one of the most rewarding things that a chef or a cook does is cook for other people. And, you know, it doesn't matter if they're a celebrity, you know, rich, poor, in between. It's how you make them feel that is more rewarding, whether, you know, oh, chef, I just wanted to say thank you. This was, you know, the best rice pudding I've ever had, and I'll always remember this day. That is more rewarding than any amount of money, and it makes, you know, all of the long hours you work just melt away I mean that's the best feeling you can get as a chef saying thank you you know from somebody this was amazing I'll always remember this one of the things that I want people to recognize and it keeps coming up is exactly what you just now said is that while people monetarily out there aren't working and they're trying to figure out what they're going to do and we all feel bad for them the one part that I want everybody out there to understand is that we in the service industry we have a passion for people. We have a passion for service. And when you do create a dish like that, um, when you send food out and you get that feedback, chef, people love the the razor clams at table 24, whatever it was, just being able to produce food, put it out there. Uh, Margot McCormick said, it's like, that's the way I give love. I put love out there, then, then the people give it back to me. And right now, all of us are missing out on that. Like there's a big part of the, the soul of our community that's not feeling that because restaurants aren't open. Yeah, and that's really the, the challenge. And the only thing that, you know, is worrisome is all of the restaurant industry is the hardest industry to maintain to begin with. And now with what we're facing with, you know, this virus moving forward is that, you know, I don't worry about the McDonald's, the Chipotle's, all of those those are going to be fine. What I'm more concerned missing about is the mom and dad and the independent restaurants that those people put so much love into their product and they cared about making sure the guests are happy and they're comfortable and they're taken care of and they do all of those little things that make you as a guest want to go back and, you know, constantly go back. And those are the ones that are going to, you know, I wouldn't want to say disappear, but those are the people that are going to be struggling the most. And they have the best restaurants. And it's scary knowing that all of these amazing restaurants 
might not possibly be around when, you know, it's time to regroup or open just from a financial standpoint or just finding employers. And I think a lot of people don't understand exactly what locally owned and operated is. I mean, these are restaurants where the owners live in your community. Their kids go to the schools in your community. They're employing 100 people from your community. They're purchasing from local farmers who farm in our community. These are, this is, it's a, it's a, a chain reaction of all of these things. When we don't support them, it doesn't support a lot of, so buy local, spend time eating at places that support local has been a, a major cry that we're, we're just trying to tell everybody. What are some low, you've been here since the end of 2017. So you've had a couple years, two and a half years almost here to figure out your dining scene. What do you, where do you like to go eat? What are some locally, um, locally owned and operated restaurants that you love? Well, I mean, um, getting back to the local, um, like I said, I've been lucky enough to live Chicago, a lot of different places and getting to Nashville, um, Nashville has blown me away with the, the sheer amount of amazing local produce, product, um, you name it, you can find it in Nashville or relatively close that is, you know, locally grown. That, to this day, still blows me away of, you know, being able to go to the, the farmer's market and all of these farms and everybody comes together to sell their product. That is really special and unique that you don't find that so often. And, uh, and I would say Nashville is a large enough city that, you know, you don't find those things where, you know, everybody kind of knows everybody and they, you know, work together and help one another out. This is what makes Nashville special, and I think this is what will help Nashville kind of rebound quicker than anywhere else because of the strong local community that we have. Which is, And it's crazy, too, because we just had a tornado, and then you get into this COVID-19, yet I, I agree with you. I feel like this community will bounce back faster because, you know, the whole Nashville strong thing as a hashtag is what it is, but it's true. I mean, the community here is really amazing. You know, and that just goes to kind of to lead into what we're currently working together, you know, with uh, a lot of chefs locally and Second Harvest. Um, and hopefully starting next week, um, there's going to be seven restaurants, you know, that are going to start cooking with products from the Second Harvest to feed as many people as we can in Nashville. Um, and that's the type of community that I'm talking about that will, you know, stay strong together and, you know, kind of make a nice break when this is over and come back. So it sounds like you're fitting into the Nashville community exactly right. You're totally getting it. You're coming in, helping cook food for people that need it right now. So let, let's, let's pivot into what we're doing right now. What was it like coming into the Capitol Grill and the Hermitage Hotel because with with Sean Brock being there for a long time and then Tyler Brown coming in directly after him, there's a real rich history of James Beard-nominated chefs, like people that have a, a culinary program there that do a fantastic job. What's it like coming into that kitchen after them? Um, you know, it's always, you know, coming into a new kitchen, whether you're a cook or a chef, 
I mean, it's always, you know, challenging because there's systems in place. There's ways that they've been doing things for a long time. So you really want to come in and, and understand and see the entire operation and how everything unfolds before you just come in and start making changes and be like, oh, I'm the new chef, you know, um, those guys, whatever they're doing, you know, that's their own thing. I'm my own person. Yes and no. Yes, I mean, there's still going to be items that, you know, I had on my menus from California that are still there. There's items and, you know, recipes that, you know, maybe Sean created or, you know, Tyler created, and then they're still intermingled throughout. So that's just how the world is and the culinary, you know, goes. But the first thing that you want to do is make sure that you come in and earn everybody's respect. Sure. And, you know, that is the, the, the hardest thing to do is because just because you're executive chef and you walk in doesn't mean that, you know, you're, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, you know, at a new place. You have to show everybody what you're capable of all over again. You have to, you know, train your staff how you want them to make your veal stock all over again and that's one of the the other unique things about the culinary world is you never stop learning you never stop growing as a cook as a chef and there's still more than you know like one way to make a sauce or make a soup so that's really the unique thing about coming into any new property is just making sure that your staff is going to follow you and I think when you come into a place like the Hermitage Hotel, I don't know if a lot of people know this. Um, when you started there, you had, a, you've, you've got, you guys have a farm, right? At the Land Trust yes, at Glen Levin. An amazing um, two-acre garden in Glen Levin that's uh, in partnership with the uh, Land Trust of Tennessee, um, and we have a, a great relationship with them where our hotel guests are able to donate to the land trust uh, through their room rates. Oh, wow. And then that percentage goes back to the land trust. And we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary of that late in August um, of this year. Um, and we've donated close to a million dollars to the land trust wow. since it's been inception. So that's that's a that's amazing. But B, that's a big responsibility too. You have two acres of land that you grow produce on, and I believe you you had a cattle farm, right? Double H Farms. But that is you guys sold that. Is that yes, correct? Yes, we did have a uh, a cattle farm um, in uh, in White Bluff, Dixon. Um, we still have the cattle. We just sold the farm. And then we relocated our cattle to our sister property in Kesselwick because they're going under a complete renovation. So it was just a little bit more space for the cows. And then once that property gets up and running, we should be looking at possibly getting some of our, you know, double H beef back. Um, so you yes, we still have all of the, the red pole cattle. We just sold the land here in Tennessee. So when you come in to be the executive chef at the Hermitage Hotel, you're not just coming into a job where you're earning yourself or you're, you're kind of, 
identifying what the menu needs to look like, you're you're kind of also a farmer, and you have to run a big farm, right? You know, that was the uh, the allure of when I was being recruited. It was um, so. Let me get this straight. Um, it's a five star, five diamond hotel. Um, they have their own cattle ranch, and we have our own two acre garden. Um, absolutely, sign me up. <laughs> Did you know anything about raising head of cattle before this? Um, no, I only knew about how to break it down and butchering it. But that was, you know, once again a learning, you know, standpoint. Um, and a constant growing. Um, I knew some ins and outs of, you know, gardening from helping my parents at their garden, but this is on a different level. So, and that's the beauty thing of, you know, the culinary world, wherever you go, I mean, you're still kind of cooking, but then you're still growing as a manager and, you know, deciding what vegetables we're going to grow and working with our, you know, our gardener to decide when we're going to harvest and that space is so beautiful out there you know i'd like to uh, when i have some free time just to go out there you know and walk around you know look at all of the beautiful produce become inspired look at spring menus summer menus you know i was gonna say how does that try growing different vegetables how does that change you know so as a chef you really are limited to what your purveyors can get what you can find Foraging is a thing, but when you're serving the public, you got to really be careful with where where you're sourcing your products. But if you're a creative guy, you're an executive chef, you're coming in, how does it change the dynamic of what you put on a menu when now you're actually producing the products yourself? It makes your job so much easier as a chef if you have access to amazing produce. Because, you know, we have so many things that we plant in the ground but I can just use past years or past harvests, you know, like a couple of weeks ago, we still, you know, before we turned the soil over, we still had some, you know, cabbage in the ground. We still had some beets, some carrots. And the beauty thing is when you know where you're getting your product and it's the best product that you can possibly grow, you don't need to, you know, get fancy with the product. And, you know, add this type of seasoning in this, you know, if you get beautiful carrots, you should let the carrots, you know, speak for themselves. Yeah. You know, and I think that's where a lot of people kind of get themselves confused and they think more is, you know, less and they keep on adding this. And then if you see some of like the menus, there's, you know, 27 different descriptors going on. Mm hmm. And that's, that's, you know, when it should be just simply roasted carrots, you know, a little bit of salt, pepper, you don't need to add like, oh, it's pesto roasted carrots with sea salt, turmeric, smoked bourbon, paprika, this and that, that gets away from cooking in my mind. It should be just, you know, simple product that you can taste everything. So that's interesting. So that's kind and of your philosophy. What, you know. Yeah, and that's what I learned at a young age from my parents, you know, watching them cook in the garden to at a really high level of a five-star, five-diamond, you know, restaurant with Sarah Stegner and George from Bars. Yeah. And then, you know, learning that, you know, ins and outs of management and leadership from Jean-Pierre, 
you know, kind of set me up to become an executive chef of the Hermitage Hotel. That's such a cool story, man. And I love, I love that you're doing it like that. And I think you have such a unique opportunity ahead of you and just things to come. I mean, you've only been there for a couple of years. I mean, what you're going to do in the next couple of years, I mean, is, is so crazy. So we've had this big opportunity with your restaurant being closed. You've had to pivot in a major way. Um, you're the first chef that I've interviewed so far who actually has a hotel that they're working with. What's your occupancy rate right now? Um, it fluctuates. Um, but unfortunately, you know, we're only having a couple rooms in house, which is great. And, you know, we've really worked hard on our to go menus as a, as a team and as a hotel to really kind of get some unique ideas out there, such as, you know, doing decorating cookies and, you know, cookie kits. Uh, we have, uh, we're selling, we did an Easter one. We're doing a Mother's Day one now. We have, uh, a spring um, kind of animal and it's a great idea that you know you can get a dozen cookies already baked off and you and your family get the uh, pastry bags of icings and sprinkles and can decorate your cookies because it's always funner to decorate the cookies than to have to wait for them to bake them off of course yeah no i think that's a you heck know, of an so idea we're getting ready to start a sourdough starter kit that we're looking to possibly sell um, because that's one of the more unique things that bread making. We're looking at kind of going more artisanal with the offerings that we have, similar to how we do our garden, more artisanal that we're growing things you can't find at the grocery store. Well, the, such as? You know? Like as our sourdough starter and the cookie decorating kits, and we're doing what are you, you growing? Know, some cocktail. Um, what are the things you're growing that you can't get at the stores? Um, a lot of heirloom uh, uh, vegetables right now. We have uh, some beautiful heirloom okra, some heirloom um, arugula, and some different types of collards and a lot of lettuces that are kind of uh, local to the area, um, which is, you know, really refreshing. So when I say, so I know the answer. be able to be a part of. I know the answer to this question, but I want to ask you so that we can clarify for our listeners. Heirloom tomatoes, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years ago, heirloom tomatoes got really big in Nashville. A guy named Randy Boone at the farmer's market, um, He's he's since passed, but uh, Boone Randy Boone did. He had all the heirloom tomatoes, and they were all the rage. When you hear something like heirloom varietal, heirloom um, okra, what is the heirloom like? What does that mean? In like general, or yeah, like in general. So, like what's the difference definition. between like an heirloom okra versus a regular okra you buy at Kroger? Depending on where you find these heirloom seeds, most of whatever they consider like heirloom are, you know, as part of the family heirlooms, you know, kind of passed down from generation to generation. That's what I would consider, you know, heirloom. Everyone just likes to throw that word around kind of like farm to table yeah. or, you know, organic. 
there are real heirlooms, you know, that have been passed down. And then most people don't understand or realize that an heirloom seed of tomatoes that you got in Maine will not grow the same or grow properly in Nashville. Um, so it's really important that when you're, you know, sourcing your seeds and you're getting them, you're kind of following where, where, what temperature, what conditions they're going to grow in. Absolutely. And so it's my understanding back, I don't know, in the 40s, 50s, I forget the exact time, uh, tomatoes all used to look crazy. They're shaped crazy. They kind of grew where they grew, and you had these different heirloom varietals that, that just had the amazing flavors, but they had to genetically alter tomatoes to be round. They had to genetically alter them to be round and so that they could package them because you can't package these tomatoes that grow in all these weird shapes. And when you have to create mass amounts of tomatoes, millions of tons of tomatoes to provide to all of the restaurants to provide food for across the country, they had to genetically alter them to be round so you could pack them in a 4x5, 5x6, or a 25-pound, just a field pack is what they call them. But the heirloom varietals didn't grow that way, so when you genetically alter them to be round, you lose some of the flavor because you're you're changing the DNA of a tomato, but these original heirloom seeds that come from a long time ago that just grow the way they grow because of where they're grown, um, and just there's so many different variables. Like you said, if you grow them in Maine, they're kind of made to grow in a cooler climate, and they, they're just different soil that they have there. The same as the like French varietals in wine. So in California, the longitude is similar to Oregon up there. That's why you can grow a Cabernet or a Merlot or a Pinot Noir because um, it's a French varietal that actually works there. Similar with an heirloom seed that I don't know if a lot of people put all those things together. I just wanted to clarify a little bit, as you mentioned, heirloom. Um, yeah, me, did I just go off know, on a tangent? Am I right? Am I wrong? No, no. I mean, um, I'm very passionate about heirloom and, and sounds like same with you. Um, and that's the other thing that I wouldn't say is disappointing. It's, you know, maybe a, a catch-22 um, that, you know, food should be served in season. You know, like, just because you can get heirloom tomatoes in the dead of winter doesn't mean they're going to taste as good as heirloom tomatoes when they're growing, you know, in the garden, in the dirt, in, you know, summer. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the, the downsides is that everyone just expects that they can get asparagus 12 months out of the year because of from shipping it in, exporting it, growing in greenhouses, and a little bit that takes away. Or a hothouse, as people call them. You get hothouse tomatoes. Exactly. Just for people out there for verbiage, if they hear, oh, those are hothouse tomatoes, those are grown in a greenhouse. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, it's great, but then, you know, and then you look at, you know, as a manager and as a chef, you know, you look at, you know, seasons for food because that's what's in season and you're paying a better price for asparagus in season than you would asparagus in winter. And that's one of the things that, you know, as the executive chef manager, you're responsible for the food costs. 100%. And if you're buying, you know, asparagus in the dead of winter, you're going to be paying two, three pounds more than what you'd be paying for that. And it, you can't really pass that on to your guests. 
So it's very important that you utilize the seasons of, you know, vegetables and fruit. And that's how you kind of create your menu of what's in season. Because those items that are in season, you're going to get the best price and you're going to get the best product. So let's talk about vendors getting the best price, the best product. Who do you source? So you have your farm. Obviously, you can't get in the middle of winter. You're not growing a ton of stuff. Just doesn't grow in 20 degree weather. Uh, this year is a little more mild, but who do you source most of your fresh produce from right now? Um, we use a, a combination for some, you know, staple items. We'll use Creation Gardens, um, and then we'll use, you know, a lot of uh, food in season for some specialty events. We'll use Bloomsbury Farm, you know, for some events, Sean Doherty and Sons. And initially we were using and they were helping us kind of get our garden growing up before we got our greenhouse to grow our seedlings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'll just, you know, depending on what we're looking for, maybe, you know, make a trip to the farmer's market. So, you know, we're using as much local product as we can. Gotcha. Well, it's good. So that's exactly what... Um what I was asking. My next, let's let's pivot here real quick one last time because I know we got to get this thing going. Going from a fine dining restaurant to doing takeout, there's some some challenges involved to that. What's been your biggest challenge, and where do you see yourself in a month? From doing fine dining to takeout, I guess it goes back to you know you're not walking the dining room, you're not interacting with the guests. You're not even seeing the guests at this point. You're just putting, you know, as nice as food as you can into a box, and then it goes on your way. And, you know, the biggest concern is that, you know, hopefully the delivery driver, you know, is takes care of the food and doesn't, like, just, you know, chuck it on the floor. And by the time the guest gets it, it looks like it, you know, went through the dryer cycle a couple times. Um, because we try and play in the boxes as we do in the restaurants. Gotcha. Do you get any feedback from so people? It's really just like a, a fear of quality as like I know as I put the lid on it and then I put it in that bag and then I don't see it again. And that's really the only fear of going into that is if it will stay, you know, nice and hot or that guests will get it and then have to maybe microwave it and then that kills all of that hard work you put into that that to go box. But that's just more fears. Yeah. Um, not necessarily reality. Okay. So I, I totally understand that. Is there are you getting feedback from people out there? Are people letting you know, hey, this was amazing. You put so much love into this box and I just really appreciate it. Are you getting any good feedback? We're getting a great feedback. We had a, uh, a guest actually send us, of a, send us a picture on Easter of their kind of spread that um, they ordered from us that they put on plates. Oh, nice. And it was actually stunning and beautiful. Oh. And um, it, was, it was great to see that, you know, that people want to, you know, take our food and you know, present it just, you know, like they were chefs and, you know, restaurateurs for their family. We should try and create a hashtag for people when they get their food home to try and recreate the dish and then they should post it on the social and tag the restaurant in it and put like, you know, hashtag 
recreate my dish or hashtag make chefs happy or something that people can see how like their vision of your dish on their plates. That would be so fun. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, we were going back and forth if it would be like too kind of snooty for a chef because I really wanted to, you know, do exactly that. Like take these boxes of food that, you know, we package up and then show people kind of how to plate the food restaurant style. But we just weren't sure if that would come off as too kind of egotistical, oh, I'm Chef Derek, this is the way I want you to plate my food type deal thing. So, I mean... I think it'd be yeah, fun just to see how the guests of, do it. Kind of curious. You put your creativity in the box, and then, hey, snap a picture of when you take it out of the box. We want you to put it on a plate and make it look gorgeous and send it back. Take a picture and tag us in it. We'd love to see how you recreate what we put in the box on a plate. I think that would be so cool. Yeah, definitely. That would be um, interesting and maybe cringeworthy at the same time as well. All right, I'm, I'm starting that. I'm going to get on that. I'm putting it out on the socials today. We're going to start that, and hopefully we'll start a trend and people can start doing that because I think that would be really fun to see. Uh, and cringeworthy, like you said. I think there's going to be both moments there. So what's next? Uh, Mother's yeah. Day is coming up. Um Big day for restaurants, big day for people going out, a lot of food going out. What are you guys doing? For Mother's Day, we had a, a lot of success with our format for Easter, where we gave uh, all of our guests an option to choose first courses, their entrees, and sides. And that went over pretty well, um, because here at the Hermitage, we do have a very long history of, you know, our beautiful large buffets and our gorgeous um, lobby. So we want to keep that on the level. And for this Mother's Day, you know, we're doing a a lot of uh, exciting kind of uh, to-go food. We have some beautiful lobster bisque um, that we're getting because, I mean, unfortunately, lobster is probably one of the cheapest items um, in the market right now that's just sustainable. Wow. We're doing a a beautiful strawberry burrata salad as strawberries start coming into season with a a Meyer lemon dressing, some beautiful candied fennel, and then a a simple orzo pasta salad with some roasted tomatoes, a little bit of pickled Peruvian peppers, and uh, a nice uh, local um, pesto. Um, definitely halibut for entrees. Halibuts is kind of coming into season right now. Um, we're going to do a roasted leg of lamb just to change it up and then, you know, stay with our prime rib because we were able to partner with Simpsons. Simpsons is a, uh, a, an amazing, great local company that's been around since 1888. Um, I believe they they started in Athens, uh, Nashville, or Athens, Tennessee, excuse me, um, and they do all of our dry aged for us here at the the restaurant, the Capitol Grill. They do a nice sixty day dry age, so we ran that for Easter, and we got a lot of feedback on that. So we're going to keep it for Mother's Day as well, and then um, we have our traditional sides, collards. You know, mac and cheese, we're going to do a 
a more straightforward potato puree instead of our red skin mashed. And then we're looking at, you know, some seasonal vegetables that we're going to offer as kind of our pick sides. I love it. That sounds like I'm so hungry hearing you describe that food. Like, and you're going to do that to go, which is just amazing to me. Let's just say I want to order Mother's Day brunch or Mother's Day lunch, Mother's Day dinner. How do I do that? Do I go online? Do I call a number? What's the best way for me Um, to do that? uh, We have a number set up through our reservations to call, and you will actually speak with uh, an agent who will guide through the order guide, take down your orders, all of your information, uh, email, telephone number, um, secured credit card information, and then that's all and done. And then you're good to go, and you let them know what time you would like to pick up your food. Um, we'll have a window from 8 a.m. until 3 p.m., and you decide when you want to come get your food, and then we'll make sure it's ready to go, nice and hot. And then definitely we'll maybe look at hashtag plate it for Mother's Day. I think we can get a lot of business with that much food to be plated. Yeah, I think I'm going to call it the replate challenge. I'm going to call Ooh, it even the replate challenge. Yeah, nice. it's going to be so I'm going to do like a contest with it. We're going to call it the replate challenge. I'm excited to see what all of our home chefs how they can take the love that you put in that box and what they can do on their plate where. I think it's going to be interesting because you're going to see chefs with a um kind of getting ideas. I think it's going to be interesting because you'll see all the people's plateware and you might see some dishes that you looked at a certain way, reimagined through somebody else's eyes on their plateware that might spark some creativity. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, because, you know, some people have some very eclectic looking plates, you know, whether they're hand-me-downs or mixed match, you know, like it all depends on the plate and what you do with it. Yeah, and... I think we're going to see some interesting interpretations of some dishes out there. Yeah, and then there's one other interesting note. Um, We had such a huge success with the Easter Bunny and kids wanting to come, and we actually had a, a Metro bus driver that stopped in front of the hotel and actually serenaded our Easter Bunny with the song My Girl. And then as like the management team, we're still really thinking about we need to find a, a Mother's Day kind of mascot to kind of, you know, do something else that's interesting, you know, to kind of get the word out. So that could be kind of surprising what we decide as our Mother's Day mascot. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm like, how do you, I don't know who that's going to be, but I'm, I'm game to hear what that is. So stay tuned, everybody. Uh, Hermitage Hotel will have potentially a Mother's Day mascot outside. So watch their socials. I'm sure they're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And um, place your order through reservations. If you want to place your order, uh, I'll, I'll put a, a their phone number will be on the link for this um, for this podcast. So you guys can all get to know. I'll put all the information as to how to get the order in on the link, Chef. Okay, so thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with me and everybody else here at Nashville Restaurant Radio. We, uh, we're so excited to have you here in Nashville and um, just 
keep on doing what you're doing, man. And uh, look forward to it. Love to have you back when this whole thing is over and kind of hear what you're doing now and how this whole thing's affected you and what you guys are pivoting to do once you reopen. Absolutely. It'd be our pleasure to come back and, um, and have you. And um, actually, it'd be our pleasure to have me back, um, if you will. <laughs> and um, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. And I had a great time talking with you. And um, I look forward to hopefully, you know, communicating with you again and talking all about our, our Mother's Day. And then she will restand here in a couple weeks. Thank you so much, Chef, for joining us here on Nashville Restaurant Radio. That's it for me, guys. Thanks so much for hanging out, and uh, we look forward to seeing you real soon. Love you guys.